Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 96 for August the 3rd, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Peter Zabo, who uh, I had the pleasure of traveling with last week down to Black Hat and DEF CON with some of our colleagues. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Chet. It's good to have you. Uh, Peter's a, a senior threat researcher in Sophos Labs, and we kind of divided and conquered mostly uh, at the conferences last week, and so we had an opportunity to kind of see some different talks, and we thought rather than go through um, you know, boring security news that you probably read about on Slashdot or Reddit or wherever it is you get your news, we talk a little bit about some of these talks because uh, we were fortunate enough to to get uh, sent to, gosh, it was hot down there though. Stinking hot. It took me like three days to rehydrate just to like get back to normal and not feel like I was just completely parched. It's a terrible place to go in the summertime, but uh, at least it's not as humid as Sydney. Yeah, I guess the, the heat and the humidity. Everybody goes, oh, but it's a dry heat. But it's like, yeah, but my lips shouldn't be chapped in August, like in the middle of the summertime up here. But you know, I start. I always love Charlie Miller's talks. I mean, he always does a good a good show every time I've seen him speak and. And so I made a point, uh, and you were there as well. We kind of stood at the back of the room. We barely made it in. Uh, but Charlie did a talk at both Black Hat and DEF CON, uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me. It was all about, like, looking into the, you know, the NFC stuff in the phones. Like, I mean, there's pretty rare. There aren't that many phones out there right now that have NFC. I think the new Blackberries do. Do you have to pay for them uh, for the extra feature? In, f in fact, I think in Britain, you still can't get the NFC uh, on the Android 2, the Galaxy Samsung. Oh, really? So it's it's even country dependent to a yep. degree. But I mean, these you know, NFC has been a common technology aside from being on our phones for a while now, right? We've got the MasterCard Pay Pass and the Visa Pay Wave and the, the uh, for Americans, I think the, the mobile gas station thing you could have in your car that would automatically pay at the pump kind of thing. And let's and, not forget, of course, the Black Hat uh, swag show. Everyone was scanning your cards. Yeah, actually, it was strange. I have a Google Nexus tab, and when I got back from Black Hat, I laid it down on my badge at home on my desk, and it popped up and goes, do you want to open this in your web browser? And I'm like, yes. And then it took me to a website going, hey, click here to download the app to your Android to download your, your leads. Charlie Miller strikes again, perhaps? <laughs> Maybe. Well, yeah, Charlie has not been removed from the Google Play Store, as far as I know, <laughs> unlike the iOS App Store. But Charlie's talk was interesting because he started out building a framework, basically, to kind of fuzz the NFC stack. Like, are there bugs in the drivers? Are there bugs in the APIs? Uh, whether it's on a Linux device or an Android device, you know, are there, you know, is there gold to be found here? And it, it kind of turned out that his conclusion was it was too hard. There really wasn't, it wasn't really worth it. He found some interesting bugs, but nothing spectacular. But he did find an avenue to open up other exploits that are already on the phone. For example, triggering a web page to make you go to a vulnerable website and triggering an attack from there. Well, exactly. The, the, the application layer was a much more fruitful for attacking and that it turned out that NFC was just a brilliant way to get there. Yeah, it was the wedge. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, it's something that uh, hopefully Google and whoever's in charge of Mego now, now that Nokia's kind of abandoned it. and uh, But mobile OS manufacturers and allegedly Apple and Microsoft are bringing NFC on their devices soon. We really do need the option to say, uh, always prompt me before doing something. I don't like this idea that you can send me to a web page just because you got within four centimeters of my butt. I think that was definitely the, uh, the comments that Charlie was making, that we should be limiting the access to automatically trigger uh, the NFC to do things like open up a web page and take you somewhere yeah i mean what's wrong with bringing a, a, a little prompt that pops up that says pete would like to share a page with you the page is blah and letting me go okay because like just tapping okay is not that hard it's still really convenient to share a url that way 
but it'd be a lot safer. And I think Google seems to be going that way a little bit more. We see their devices won't talk NFC unless they're awake and they're unlocked as of ice cream sandwich. And I tested this with my uh, uh, jelly, is it jelly bean or uh, whatever the, uh, the, the new um, 4.1 that was on my Nexus uh, tablet. And in fact, you know, even when the phone is awake, it won't accept an NFC until I've actually entered my passphrase in to unlock it. Yeah, I think one of the examples he showed was a different type of phone where if you sent someone a text message, you'd wake up. And as soon as it woke up, of course, the NFC triggered as well because you had to sit on the NFC chip. Yeah, so it's kind of like they're progressing, right? First it was, uh, well, we'll make it so it only works when the phone's awake. Now they're going, oops, well, we'll make it so it's only if it's awake and you've entered your passcode. So we're edging closer and closer, hopefully, to a more secure platform. And and fortunately, the stuff's in its infancy. There's very few devices out there that have them, and the big wave seems to be coming at the end of this calendar year. So maybe we can figure these things out and not ship them vulnerable and have to go back and patch them later. Maybe we can do it right from the beginning. Or what I figured is you could use a bubblegum wrapper which is stuck inside the phone, is actually quite good to disrupt the signal. Yeah, well, and people don't realize the signal is extremely weak uh, for these NFC devices. So, yeah, something as simple as the bubblegum, was there a particular brand? It was a real foil. It must uh, have been a real was, foil. I think it was the five, <laughs> whatever it was called, the five. Sophos recommends five bubblegum to protect your NFC. Uh, so, um, well, and, you know, after you did that, uh, I did wrap my Visa PayWave-enabled uh, MasterCard in my wallet. Well, it's or, certainly uh, cheaper than those metal cases that you can buy on aircraft duty-free for like 50 bucks or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And you can enjoy a sensation and have fresh fresh breath. Exactly. So bubblegum instead of Sky Mall is the conclusion of the Charlie talk. Now, you went to, uh, you said it was a really good talk called Using Media as a Cyber Mule. Yeah, it was by Thor. Um, if you'd met him in the street, you'd never expect him to be a, a presenter, but he was actually quite comical. Um, he demonstrated uh, embedding pictures into sound audio which you then embedded onto um facebook pages so the idea was you didn't want to be caught with certain media or certain tools of the trade so you would upload them to a social media site um and he had a picture of a, a a waterfall where he asked the audience to discern whether whether they could tell there was something in there uh, and he embedded the picture and a message and he went through the complexities of doing that so it was like multi-layered steganography then so he took uh, an object and then he'd embed that into a picture and then embed the picture into a sound well you convert the, the picture into sound yes using um i can't remember it was uh, audio density waveforms um but the, there was quite a problem there in that he that he showed that if you had the levels too too spec too broad spectrum you would get some of the, uh, the levels clipping in in by the likes of facebook where they tuned down the video and so he showed that you could uh manipulate the waveforms and still get a reasonable uh compression ratio out of the image huh well i mean steganography is not exactly new but that sounds pretty clever it it was it was interesting and very entertaining in in the way he presented the the technique and uh uh he got quite a few laughs at the audience in terms of the the way presented in for hiding things from the law or from the the um authorities well and i guess it's one of these things that these shows that most geeks actually aren't that great a presenter so you really appreciate it when somebody's got their message on and, and the idea that he's talking about is quite complicated so to be able to present that well is pretty welcome i mean you get some of these talks i mean i'm sure you sat through some of them as well and it's not just that someone may or may not be a native english speaker it's some of them are really hard to get through like they're just flat boring so it's always welcome when you got somebody that really loves what they're talking about the worst one is like three english words out of an entire 20 minute 30 minute talk where you basically get what's in your title and that's about it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I saw another one that was kind of interesting called The Myth of 12 More Bites. And at first I saw it in the schedule. I'm like, the hell is that? And then when I read the description, I'm like, oh, right. So they're talking about, you know, IPv6 and how uh, somehow the impression is out there that we're going to be more secure because, geez, I've got 4 billion IP addresses on my personal network. And so, my fridge can talk to your phone. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not. Uh, well, that's the the thing. But I mean. How do you find my fridge amongst four billion IPs, right? Like, how do you? Um, so, a lot, there's this perception that somehow because things like IPsec are baked in, and that we've got all these IP addresses and blah blah blah, that somehow IPv6 is a a newer, safer path. When the reality is kind of the opposite. We just haven't explored what the risks are that are being introduced with it. And and it wasn't simply about IPv6. It was a little misleading. They they also uh, delved a bit more into things like DNSSEC because they're kind of going hand in hand. As we're re-architecting the internet toward IPv6, we're also trying to adopt more secure uh, name services and other things along the way. And uh, I guess the, the takeaway, there's some fascinating things around how digitally signing everything, uh, the way you do in a, a DNSSEC world, actually discloses information about what's not there as much as what's there and that can help an attacker do their reconnaissance as well mm. and it was well, just fingerprinting basically yeah and, and just kind of figuring out like how do you respond negatively uh, you know i guess the easiest way to explain it to people would be when you go to log into a website and you type your password wrong if it tells you your password is wrong instead of just saying login and try again then you start to narrow down, okay, I found a valid username or I found a valid this, and you can start using that intelligence to attack the system. And when everything is validated as to where it came from and what the result is, how do you not, again, provide that that view that, in fact, not only are you not, that you're just not authorized to see this, it doesn't exist, is actually a valuable piece of information that you're passing along. It's information disclosure at its best. Yeah, yeah. So it, the talk was quite well done. Um, I, I plan on writing it up for Naked Security soon, so uh, I'll get into some more details on there. But I, I don't. I hope it doesn't discourage people from adopting DNSSEC or IPv6. It just it does show that we've got a little bit more thinking to do uh, as we start adopting these things. That there's always unintended side effects that come with either the automation of IP address assignment like you get in IPv6 or signing things or there's was, always these Was things. there any talk uh, or reference to the, the parsing of the IPv6 stack? Uh, there's been a lot of vulnerabilities in the original IPv, IPv4 stack. Um, so was that touched on at all? Not in this talk. I've seen some other talks at, at other cons where they do talk about the stack a bit more because I think there's still an unpatched uh, DOS flaw in the Windows IPv6 stack. Um, I, actually, that's to be an interesting point with Windows 8 coming out, whether that's been fixed or not. I should poke into that and take a look. Released in, released in October, I believe. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. We we should be getting our copies as developers any day now. So um, we'll have to look into that as well then. That's a good question. Uh, you also uh, went to a talk that was a bit more specific, uh, more of our Ballywick in the antivirus space, of course, on the uh, file disinfection framework. Uh, yes, this was by a, a, a researcher from uh, Reversing Labs that I know called uh, Mario. Um, polymorph viruses do tend to cause a lot of problems for the AV industry because they basically mutate every single iteration. Um, and disassembling or, or, or reconstructing them is a, is a rather time-consuming process to do properly. Um, so what they've developed is a process for automated, uh, almost an unpacking framework, which unpacks the virus to a point where you can remove or strip off the, the malicious component and leave the executable um, disinfected in place. So they portrayed, uh, I think the high level one was uh, 
the the virut virus strain, which actually showed quite nicely. And they also actually released the framework, which is an open source uh, foundation on the Titan engine, so that other AV industry and non-AV people can actually poke around with it. So the idea, I guess, is to allow the um, the malware to execute to the perfect time at which it's unpacked itself and it's back to its original form and then halt right there. That's correct. And it's scriptable. So you can actually embed hooks into the malware, say, if it creates a file, good, we'll catch that event. If there's anti-bugging, we'll catch that event. And eventually, using just like an unpacking engine, except you're unpacking a, a virus component, which is actually quite helpful in our industry. Well, yeah, most things, uh, I mean, a, a lot of malware employ these techniques. And I mean, uh, so, but, but this would not help for things like server-side polymorphism. This would just be polymorphism within the malware samples themselves. Correct, server-side polymorphism hidden away from us. Uh, and without a takedown order or access to the ISP, it's very hard for us to get that component. And we can just infer what the generation is going to be. Um, the only good thing about polymorphic malware is it actually takes a lot of skill to write. And so it's not as prevalent uh, in the world. We've only seen about three or four major families in the last six or so years. Right. And that, and once we know how it works, it makes it easier for us to identify it in our engines. So Absolutely true. But it takes uh, you know weeks of analysis uh, for the really hard ones to, to actually get our heads around it, particularly for the very strong polymorphic engines from the days of like zombie. So Mario's tool, in essence, would help potentially accelerate that process of understanding what's going on in there when we come across the next uh, vexing sample. Very much so. Great. Well, um, that concludes this chat chat number 96. Uh, for the latest security news, as always, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on iTunes or via RSS. And until next time, stay secure. Thanks, Chet.